This morning as we uh, continue in our worship, we're going to uh, be going to God's Word. If you have your Bible there, uh, you're welcome to turn. I'm going to be reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 29 through 39. Mark, chapter 1, verse 29. And immediately he, that is Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he, Jesus, said to them, Let us go to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came forth. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this word. We thank you for Pastor Matt, who's coming to minister your word to us. Speak to us. Let us hear your voice in the voice of of our pastor, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, sir. Well, again, good morning, everybody. Um, I I just want to start by saying that uh, I've been really encouraged in my prep for uh, the various messages for this series of following Jesus on his terms, based on the Gospel of Mark. Right from the beginning, the gospel of Mark is gospel of action. Uh, We see the word immediately, nine times just in the first chapter. And so uh, it's been great to see, um, to learn a little bit more about Jesus' approach to ministry and who he is by how he ministers. And... um, I want to start this morning with a question. I want to ask you to be as honest with yourself as you possibly can. If you could ask Jesus, if you could ask Jesus for one thing, anything, if you could ask Jesus for one thing, what would it be? I want you to think about that. Try to be as honest as you can. And here's why I'm asking you that question. I'm asking that question uh, because answering that question has a way of highlighting what is most important to you. Answering that question has a way of highlighting what is most important to you. So, what would you ask for? How did you answer that question? And why is that most important to you? See, our passage this morning reveals the heart of King Jesus and what is important to him. 
And, and here's, here's what I want us to grasp this morning. Growing in your faith means that your desires match God's desires. Growing in your faith means more and more you become passionate about what King Jesus is passionate about. Growing in your faith means what he wants for you becomes what you want for yourself. Growing in your faith means what is important to him becomes what is important to you. Our passage this morning has four different scenes. The scene at a fisherman's house, the gathering of a huge and growing crowd, an isolated place of prayer, and a conversation with the disciples. Now in these four scenes, Jesus demonstrates what is important to him because these four scenes also reveal who he is. We have four scenes and three points, and the first one is this. Jesus is king, and he really does love you. You may have heard Jesus loves you like a billion times, but I think we doubt it more than we realize. Watch what Jesus does here. Verse 29, and it says, and immediately, there's that word again, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left, and she began to serve them. Now, Jesus had just given this astonishing public demonstration of his power over evil, casting out demons in the synagogue, and it says that his fame began to grow. Word gets out about his authority and his power, and I think most people in Jesus's position that got that kind of attention would bask in the fame. It's time to go on tour, time for the platform and, and spotlights, time to be as public as possible, time to you know, land that book deal, no time to waste, seize the moment. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he ducks out and immediately goes to Simon's house, the small home of a fisherman, and wastes no time engaging in what seems to be not as important as moving the show on the road. I mean, the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the deliverer who is promised all the way back after the fall in Genesis 3 that the prophets have been telling about, keep an eye out for him, he's coming, he's gonna save everybody, change the world, save the world. The Messiah shows up to be the savior of the whole world, renew all things, and the mother-in-law of one of his disciples being sick with a fever doesn't seem to be the most important issue right now. But this moment tells us something about King Jesus. Many of his miracles were, were public demonstrations of his messiahship, right? Declaring that he is Lord over evil. He is Lord over the body. He is Lord over creation. And he enters our time and space saying, I am the king. I am savior. I am the promised Messiah. There is no one before or after me like me. I am the Lord. But here... What we see in this scene is not a public demonstration of his power and glory. 
This is Jesus being loving and compassionate away from the public eye. Jesus is king, and he really does care about all of the effects of the fall. He really does care about all of the ways the destruction of the fall messes up your life, in large ways and small ways. This right here in this scene is Jesus entering a mundane moment because of his love. Nothing's too small. He is Lord of all. Now, do you see how important this is for you? Your life is filled with large and small events that mess up life because of the destructiveness of the messed up world that we all live in. But Jesus is king, and he really does love you. He really does care about your struggle. King Jesus is Lord of all. Now, um, as you picked up in the, the pastoral prayer um, earlier, Melissa and Jacob Perry are expecting their first baby. And this last week, Melissa posted on Facebook asking for prayer. And in her words, she asked to keep her sweet little peanut in prayer. Her doctors found fluid around her baby's heart and they've been keeping an eye on it. And during her appointment last week, they discovered that the fluid had increased. And they're gonna check it again next week for any changes and evaluate for treatment. The doctors know what they're doing and Melissa and her baby are, are getting great care, but it is natural for any parent to be concerned. And so we pray. And why do we pray? We pray because we really do believe that although this is, this is one little baby still growing and developing for birth, God loves this baby, cherishes this baby, values this baby, and God loves Melissa and Jacob, and God will not turn a deaf ear to the cries of his people. That is the love of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it's kind of hard to wrap your head around that. You, you don't have to say, well, for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, my needs are, are too small for him to care about. But here in this passage, we see the heart of Jesus. We see a demonstration of who Jesus is, who your King is. And he really does love you. When Jesus is told about this woman's fever, he immediately takes her by the hand, lifts her up, and immediately the fever is gone. And verse 31 adds this small note. And she began to serve them. Why were those few words tacked on there? Well, what it does is it demonstrates uh, that this was a complete miracle. This woman's strength was completely restored. I mean, you know how you feel after you've had a fever for a long time, right? I mean, you're wiped out. You want to sleep all day, and when you're not asleep, you just want to binge on Netflix. But this woman was immediately 
given back all of her strength. And the response of her heart was, I want to serve the one who has done this for me. You are loved by a redeemer who cares about the details of your life. He cares about what it is that you're facing, and he will not turn a deaf ear to your cry. So, let me ask you something. I want you to think about your, this most recent week or month, several months. Where did the destruction of the fallen world push in on you? Where has the destruction of a fallen world pushed in on you? Where did you face the pain and the suffering and the confusion and the weakness and the disillusionment in a fallen world? What comes to your mind? Here's what I want you to know. King Jesus will not relent until every effect of the fall is finally conquered. And if you trust him to be your king, you will live life with him forever in a fully renewed, fully restored world where there will be no more sadness, no more sickness, no more suffering. That is the love of our king. Next, Jesus is your king, not your genie. Jesus is your king, not your genie. Let me explain. First, watch what happens next. Verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Now, it does not take the crowd very long at all to track down Jesus. They flood this fisherman's house and surround it. The crowd gets larger and larger. It says the whole city shows up to this fisherman's house because Jesus was there. And people were bringing in broken bodies and those who are uh, possessed and jostling to get close to this, to this healer. There was so much suffering. And Jesus begins to respond to their needs. Now, I think that it is especially helpful to understand the motivation of this crowd because it helps you understand what Jesus does after this. As far as the motivation of the crowd goes, there, there's no evidence that this crowd was rushing to Jesus because they want him to be their king. There's no evidence that they've understood Jesus's requirements. There's no evidence that they understand the, the spiritual healing that, that Jesus can bring. The evidence that we have here is that the crowd is actually excited about not Jesus as king, but, and, and not the good news of the kingdom that says repent and believe, but the crowd is excited about the miracle working ability of Jesus. That is incredibly short-sighted, and I totally get it, because I think that's exactly how I would be if I were there too. Now, obviously, 
It is not wrong to bring your needs to him. We just talked about that. He wants us to trust him with all of our needs, right? But it's critical to know that something is wrong if that's all you want, just wanting what Jesus can give you. But Jesus is not a genie who exists to grant your wishes. Jesus wants to be what you want most because he knows that nothing else that he could give you will satisfy. He wants you to love the gift giver, not just the gifts. He knows that everything else will let you down and rip you off, fade away. He wants to be your greatest desire for your good and God's glory. You know, there's a scene in John chapter six where Jesus feeds the 5,000 people from a boy's lunch with plenty of leftovers. And the crowd begins to pursue Jesus, to become followers of Jesus. And if you were a disciple there, you'd be thinking, this is it. The crowds get it. Jesus has thousands of new disciples. It's happening. But then right after that, Jesus ducks out again. And when the crowd finally catches up with him, they wonder, why'd you ditch us, Jesus? We don't get it. And Jesus says, you ate the bread, but you didn't see the sign. Meaning, this miracle is supposed to show you a, a deeper need in your heart, in your life, in your soul. You need the bread of life. And I am the bread of life, eternal life. Jesus is saying, you need to see your spiritual hunger and only I can satisfy that. He wants the best for them and he wants the best for you. You know, there's been a horrible distortion of the gospel message in our culture. You wanna be happy, healthy, and wealthy? Well, come to Jesus. But Jesus is king. Jesus is your savior. Jesus is not your genie. One of the worst things Jesus could do is give you everything you want. He knows what you need. So my question for you is, do you really love Jesus as your king? Do you see the depth of your need for him? That has to come first. Now watch what happens next, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus withdraws again from the crowd to pray. Now the Gospels, it's easy, I don't know why it becomes easy for us not to think about it, but the gospels show us the humanity of Christ. He'd get thirsty, he'd get hungry, he'd get exhausted, he was a man, and here he is, alone, in a desolate place, praying to his father. Now Mark doesn't tell us what he prayed here, 
But we have other prayers of Christ in the New Testament. And over and over and over again, when Jesus prays, Jesus commits himself to the will of the Father. Jesus prays for those that he's ministering to so that they would receive his message. Jesus regularly stands in our place, taking the mission and those who would be blessed by his mission to the Father. There in verse 35, when it says, and Jesus went out to a desolate place. It's the same word used earlier in this chapter when Mark talks about Jesus being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to face temptation for us. And here again, Jesus is in the wilderness going to the Father for us, for our good and God's glory, for our eternal good. Jesus is our Savior King, not our genie. Now last, Jesus is your king, so share his mercy and his message. Watch what happens next, verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So Jesus disappears, takes off into the wilderness. Where in the world is Jesus? The crowd is gathered. This is an amazing opportunity. Where is he? The disciples are, are confused and possibly irritated. Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Why would you be out here? What in the world are you doing? And Jesus says, let's go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Now, <laughs> this right here shows us what is most important to King Jesus. He is saying, yes, I'm absolutely willing and determined to demonstrate my power to heal people physically and to cast out demons, but I'm not here just to be some miracle worker. I am here to be a savior. I am here to bring a deeper healing. I am here to reverse the destruction of sin physically and spiritually, so I am resolved to go from town to town to preach the gospel. That is what is most important to him. Jesus is our king, and he expects me, and he expects you to be a loving, compassionate community in our city. Jesus is our king, and he expects me, and he expects you to be advocates of justice and mercy. Jesus is our king, and he expects me, and he expects you to care about reversing the effects of the fall, to minister to the needs of the poor, to care about people enough to seek justice for those who need justice, to be an example of mercy that sets the pace in our corner of the world. Jesus is our king, and this is what he expects of his followers. But you need to know that can't stand alone. We will not renew our city by acts of kindness and mercy alone. 
if by God's grace our city is to be renewed, it will be renewed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must be committed to the centrality of the gospel. We must commit ourselves to be looking for every opportunity we can to bring a loving diagnosis of the bad news and the message and application of the healing good news. Now it is possible, it is possible to serve others with no gospel motivation or or, or no, no gospel proclamation whatsoever, and we can thank God for his common grace. But when the gospel is central, when the gospel is what motivates, when the gospel is shared in both word and deed, that is what brings powerful renewal. You know, it's, uh, it's really common to either value mercy over the message or to value the message over mercy. But we must not pit them against each other. We cannot separate Jesus's mercy and Jesus's message. When we do, the powerful potency of both mercy and the message is lost because faith without works is dead. They go together. King Jesus' message and mercy saved you. King Jesus' message and mercy changed you. King Jesus' message and mercy continues to change you. And to the extent that you see this, to the extent that you believe that, you will share King Jesus' message and mercy with others. You know, everybody, everybody needs a loving diagnosis of the bad news. Because left to ourselves, it is impossible for us to live um, in loving obedience to God, to live in a way that is life-giving to us and those around us. God is loving enough to destroy destructive sin, but does not want to destroy us. And this is why we celebrate the person and the work of Jesus Christ, how his sacrifice on the cross to pay the price for his sin accomplishes our acceptance with God, our forgiveness of sin, and the ultimate hope that we will be fully delivered from it. And King Jesus is advancing his kingdom to renew you and to renew all things. That is the gospel message. Now, I've got two, questions, two more questions I want to ask you as I wrap this up. And this first one might sound like a weird question if you've uh, been attending our church or part of our church for any length of time. But I want to ask you, do you love the gospel? Do you cherish the gospel? Do you trust the gospel? Do you value the gospel in such a way that it motivates you to share that message of hope and forgiveness 
in the places where God gives you opportunity? Do you love the gospel in ways that, that, that you want to be a part of, of the ministry of Infusion Church in any way that you can? Do you love the gospel in ways that, that you want to embody the mercy and grace of the King where you are with the hope that it will give you opportunities for ministry? Do you care about the gospel enough to care about the people around you? Do you look at the people around you through the lens of the gospel? I think it's important for us to ask ourselves that question and ask each other that question because it's so easy to quit noticing, to forget the gospel, to not care, and then to have a cold heart as you live in the place where God has put you, to forget the need that is everywhere around you, to mock people who don't believe what you believe, to adopt an us versus them approach towards what is supposed to be your mission field, to justify a disregard for approach and tone, even though you chafe at approaches and tones that you don't like that are aimed at you and your loved ones. Do you love the gospel? Jesus says, this is my mission. This is why I came out. Therefore, this is your mission, to proclaim the good news, to live out the good news. And I expect you to share my message and my mercy. You know, we cannot, we sang this morning, we can't sing about the mercy of God, God's sweet mercy, as it being the joy of our heart. We can't sing about how God in his mercy won our affections. We can't sing about how, you know, the hardness of my heart was dissolved by God's goodness and, and mercy and then not show God's mercy to others. It is to forget who you are. It is to forget the mercy that God has shown you. When you remember the mercy that God has shown to you, your heart will overflow with gratitude and joy and desire to worship him and want to see other people worship him. And then you share his message, not out of a sense of obligation, so you could tell yourself, well, I did what I was supposed to do. Oh, you just, you're loving them to Jesus and sharing the truth of Jesus in a loving way. As Jesus began his ministry here in Mark, he began marching toward the cross because the good news is a result of a great sacrifice. There had to be a perfect lamb of God who would satisfy the justice of the Father. There had to be a final demonstration of authority over evil. Paul in Colossians says, on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle of the enemy triumphing over them by the cross. And in our text where it says in that last verse that Jesus went throughout all Galilee preaching the good news, Jesus becomes the good news as he conquers sin on the cross and he conquers death as he walked out of the tomb. This, Jesus, 
is a loving Redeemer King who is zealous to save and renew the world. And King Jesus will not relent until the destruction of sin is destroyed. So here's my last question for you. And it's a personal question. Do you love the gospel for you? Do you love the gospel for you? I mean, are you wrecked in the face of your own sin? Or, or, or have you gotten used to things that you should not grow used to? Maybe it's selfishness, maybe it's pride, maybe it's unforgiveness, maybe it's bitterness, maybe it's lust, maybe it's gossip. Are you zealous for salvation? And does it match the zeal of your king? Do you bask in the fact that there is grace for every single one of your struggles, that you can stand before God in your mess because you stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Christ? Or do you deny, avoid, explain away, shift the blame? Have you grown comfortable with things for which you should be convicted? Now here's the thing. God's kindness leads us to mercy. And I want to tell you to not let anybody else tell you that if you take grace seriously, you don't take sin seriously. That is a messed up view of grace. The only way you can take sin seriously is if you take grace seriously because it's God's grace that enables you to be open and honest about the sin in, in your heart. Knowing that he loves you no matter what, you don't have to hide from him. And he wants to bring healing to you. But we've gotta be honest with him about what's in our sin and not justify it and, and, and be in denial about it. So you know your heart better than, than anybody else besides God. And maybe you're feeling the shame of it. Well, at least that's telling you that you know something's wrong. But the devil wants to rub your nose in it and to shame you away from God the Father. But King Jesus in his love and grace wants you to go to him to be delivered from shame and for you to bask in the joy and the experience of the love that God the Father has for you. King Jesus is zealous for the progress of the gospel in your heart and in your world. The gospel that leads to the cross and promises you forgiveness and freedom and deliverance. Jesus is your king and he renews everything. So trust him, follow him, represent him, his message and his mercy. God will work in you and through you through the power of the gospel. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?